We'll uh, open in a word of prayer, and then we'll look at Judges chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather here tonight as believers, and we don't take that for granted. And, Father, we pray for these churches who are suffering and being closed down and things like that, and we just pray that you would uh, grant them access and be able to worship together as the body of Christ. Thank you for a good Sunday that we've had and uh, all that we've done so far this week. And we just pray tonight you'd help our minds, though we may be physically tired, uh, focus on your word for a few moments together and and uh, understand a little more about uh, Gideon and uh, the judges of Israel. And we just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to look at Judges chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. And... Uh, for some time now, we've been looking at the lives of the judges of Israel, and for the last few months, or, or last few weeks, our attention has been focused on Gideon, the uh, reluctant judge. And as you remember, Gideon was a uh, fearful young man when the Lord selected him to lead the nation of Israel into battle against the enemies, uh, the Midianites. And while Gideon was reluctant to obey uh, the Lord's call on his life at first. Eventually, he did come around. He, he uh, did do what the Lord commanded him to do. And he led this tiny force. We learned this last time, a couple weeks ago, this tiny force of just 300 men into battle against an overwhelming army of 135,000. Uh, so the odds were not in his favor. Uh, logically, when you look at it. And yet God intervened and he gave Gideon and his men an astounding, incredible victory. And uh, the Midianites were put to flight and they suffered terrible losses. Uh, Judges uh, chapter 8, verse 10 tells us that only 15,000 men were left after they got routed by Gideon and the 300. Of the original 135 thousand only 15,000 were left that's still a lot of men against 300 but we'll see how it works out and the chapter records the events that occurred in the immediate aftermath of the conflict we we were in chapter 7 last time and um, we saw how God gave Gideon and the 300 men incredible victory but apparently not everyone in Israel was excited about this victory uh, they weren't excited about the great victory that God gave Gideon and his men. It seems that some of the people in Israel were more concerned about their own personal profit, their own personal pride, than they were about what God had done for their nation. So they were more focused on themselves. Uh, they failed to grasp the big picture, and uh, they were too focused on their own interest. And that's something that's common to us today, Right? We get so focused on ourselves and what we're doing and everything, we forget anybody else even exists, sometimes including God. <laughs> and so this passage is, allows us, chapter 8, verses 1 to 21, to just get a glimpse of both sides of what I'd call human character. On the one hand, you can see the pride of those who cared about nothing but themselves, their own pride, their own personal pride and glory. We'll see that tonight. But on the other hand, you see those who were motivated by the glory of God. That really motivated them to do the right thing. And we see some who cared for nothing but themselves, and we see some who persisted in spite, in the face of opposition. 
criticism and overwhelming odds. And so we want to look at pride politics and persistence tonight. And we'll look at these different types of people as they're presented as we go through the text. So we'll just read the text as we go through it rather than take time to read the whole, the whole text at once. But in verses 1 to 3, as you start off there, we see some were prideful. It says, And the men of Ephraim said to him, said to Gideon, What is it that you have done to us? Now remember, this is after they just won an incredible victory. What is this you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. They were critical. Um, they, were, they were prideful people, but they were really, they were just critical of Gideon and this battle. And, uh, it, you know, you, you got to think, the Midianites here were just overwhelmingly defeated. They were on the run, and God gave them victory over it, and God sent messengers to the men of Ephraim to pursue after them. And the Midianites, um, they, they, they went after these, these folks, um, after the, the Midianites, and they killed two of the, the princes of the Midianites, and they brought their heads to Gideon. We saw that last time in, in chapter 7. Uh, verse, uh, verses 24 and 25. Uh, they, they cut off their heads, these two princes. And so when they met up with Gideon again, they began to criticize him. And they wanted to know why they weren't asked to go along to join in the battle from the very beginning. And the Bible says there that they accused him what? It says fiercely in the ESV. And that has the idea of a really uh, nasty, bitter, strong, cutting words they were using against Gideon and his men. And they had attacked Gideon because they, he had not called them into battle. Now, we have to understand a little more about these, these people, Ephraimites. Who were they? Uh, Ephraim was the largest of all the tribes. It was the largest one. And at this time, the tabernacle was located in Shiloh, which was in Ephraim. So, it's, it's important to understand that because the Ephraimites, they descended from Joseph, historians tell us, and his Egyptian wife. And they were a tribe that was proud of their heritage. They were proud of their influence. They were proud of their power. They had a lot of pride going on. And they wanted the, to make sure that the rest of the tribes uh, respected them. And so Ephraim was usually, as, as a tribe, on the wrong side when it comes to spiritual matter, matters. They were just on the wrong side. Uh, later, during the reign of Judge uh, Jephthah, the tribe of Ephraim, back in Judges chapter 12, we'll get to that eventually, verses 1 to 4, they would complain again that they had been left out of the battle. So they're always being left behind, it seems. Now, one thing... The book of Hosea, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. Chapter 7, verse 8, says about Ephraim, it says that they are like a cake that's not turned. That's what the, the verse literally says. 
Ephraim, you're like a cake that's not turned. What does that mean? It means they were overcooked on the bottom and raw on the top. All right, they were imbalanced. They were hot toward the world, but they were cold toward God. That's what he was explaining. And Ephraim was a, a tribe that was marked by trouble, by pride, and by selfishness. Selfishness, A lot like the church we're looking at in the book of Corinthians, right? First Corinthians. The church at Corinth was filled with trouble and pride and selfishness. Um, another rebuke to the pride of Ephraim is found in, in Psalm 78, 9. It says this, The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. So even though they had a lot of pride and all this stuff, um, it seems that apparently at some point they turned back. In this case, they are jealous of Gideon's victory is why they're jealous. That's why they're mad. If they were, if they were with Gideon, what would they want to do? They would get the glory for themselves, right? Um, and that's why God, remember the story, he kind of winnowed down Gideon's men and got rid of all these people before he went to battle. And they're sorry they missed out on the spoils of war. And so they're, they're angry because they're not the object of glory. They, they just turned on Gideon. They thought, who do you think you are? You know, taking all these people and 300 men and going up against this, all this. And, you know, you didn't invite us. Um, and if Ephraim had been truly concerned about the oppression of the Midianites all along, if they would have been truly concerned... Uh, they could have gone to war with them themselves, could they have not? So they didn't do that. They just didn't do that. So they, they kind of had mixed motives here. Um, they could have volunteered for Gideon's army. They didn't do that. Um, but that never really would have worked because they were in it for their own glory, and God knew that. So God removed them ahead of time. And so when Gideon asked for the fearful to leave the battlefield, or for those who bowed down to drink to leave their their pride probably would have kept them there just because they wanted the glory of being involved in this process and so they're concerned with the wealth and the glory and they think that they missed out so they're ticked off they're mad they're angry and you know what that's typical is it not of people who are full of themselves people who are full of themselves the only thing they think about is themselves when they don't get their way or when they miss out on claiming the glory, what happens? They throw a little temper tantrum. They get upset. And so it's kind of like a uh, prideful peacock, right? They just strut around calling attention to themselves. They don't really do anything. And usually when it comes to trouble, they take off. All right? That's the, the way the Ephraimites were. They won't do anything but they're quick to lift their voice and to squawk and to criticize those who do. And that's what they were doing with Gideon and the 300 men. Uh, They won't make a decision on themselves to go fight against the Midianites. Uh, They won't take a risk themselves. They won't join in with others as they see them follow the will of God, but they don't hesitate to find fault with those people who are attempting to do something for God. Um, I don't know about you, but there's still plenty of those people around. There's plenty of those people around. They're so quick to criticize somebody who's working for the Lord or being involved in ministry or something like that, helping Sunday school or doing whatever, and they would never lift a finger to help, but they're the first ones to criticize what you're doing. And that's, that's unfortunate. Um, that's an attitude the church can do without. 
And so we've got to be careful of that. But here you see the criticism of Ephraim. And uh, secondly, you see the control of Gideon. Look at verse 2. I mean, if I was in this situation, I probably would have lost it. <laughs> right? I'm just telling you, I would have lost it. But verse 2, look at what it says. And he said to them, Gideon said to them, What have I done in comparison with you? What's he do? He appeals to their own pride. They don't even know he's doing it. He's, and he reminds them that the Lord has blessed them. He says, well, what do I have in comparison with you? The, you know, your grapes are much better than, than these other ones around. And uh, Gideon reminds them that God gave them the Midianite uh, princes. You're the guys that cut off the heads. And he turns away their wrath because, remember, they're really upset at Gideon. And what he does, he turns away their wrath because he swallowed his own pride and realized, okay, these guys are criticizing me. Don't they understand? You know, I mean, Gideon would have had kind of a, a good reason to be angry at them. But he thought, what's that going to accomplish? And so he turns it around and he realizes that, you know what, I'm not going to be motivated by my own feelings. I'm going to think, what's best for the nation of Israel? Um, he was motivated by submission to the will of God. God told him what to do, and he was doing it, and people were criticizing him. And you know what? A lot of times, that's cause for discouragement, is it not? When you're trying to do your best, and you're trying to do whatever the Lord wants you to do, and you know without a doubt that's what God's called you to do, but you have all these you know, squawking peacocks around you telling you, wow, you should have done it this way, you should have done that, you should do this, you should do that. And it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with helpful criticism from people who are involved and roll their sleeves up and are willing to, to pitch in. But when you get criticism from people who are not doing anything more than just sitting there criticizing, that's not too helpful. That's hard to take. But he wasn't motivated by his own feelings. He was motivated by doing the will of God. And so Gideon gave them the glory they wanted. <laughs> He really did. And they were satisfied. They look at the text. It says, you know, okay, and they just kind of, uh, they're in their anger against him, verse 3, subsided when he said this. What's funny is people like that are so easy to manipulate. <laughs> if you want to manipulate someone who's just in it for their own glory. You know, all you got to do is just tell them what they want to hear. If you just tell them what they want to hear, then they're satisfied. You know, uh, I'm not saying do that, but I'm saying that's, that's what happens a lot of times. And so we have to be careful with that. When you're doing something for the Lord, always expect criticism by those who are doing nothing. Because if you expect it, when it comes, then it's not a surprise. And when they attack you, your motives, and they attack your efforts or whatever, um, it's easy to get sidetracked and allow your anger to really well up in your heart and say something maybe you shouldn't say. It's easy to lash out and tell them off or put them in their place or whatever. And when the attacks come, and they will, we should be like Gideon and exercise control over our emotions. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not easy for me. And so I need to be reminded of things like Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or Proverbs 16.32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty but he who rules his spirit, and he who rules his spirit, then he who takes a city. In other words, you know what? If you, can, if you can allow the spirit to control your emotions to the degree that, you know what? At least 
when your anger comes out, it, hopefully it's righteous anger. It's not over some petty little thing. And, and trust me, we all deal with anger to some degree, but that's been a, a troubling thing in my life for years. It's just, you know, it's just a hard thing to get a hold of. You constantly got to yield it to the Lord, yield it to the Lord. And instead of getting sidetracked by all this criticism you may be getting when you're serving the Lord, whether it's in Sunday school or helping in the kitchen, whatever people are criticizing, just keep your eyes on the Lord. Continue to do what God has assigned you to do, how he's gifted you, and don't worry about anything else. That's what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2 says, right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, it says, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Then it says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, at the throne of God. Whenever I read that verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, I'm always reminded of a a picture, I don't even know if I have it somewhere, but it's a picture of one of my nephews, uh, Lance, and he was running in a race, and he was pretty good in track when he was in high school, and he's running in this race, and it, it, it shows him like in, in mid-motion, and his eyes are just dead ahead. It's just like a perfect picture of someone who's so focused. He's not looking over his shoulder. And we've all seen pictures of athletes who get distracted, right? Their, their goal is to take the football and put it into the end zone, right? But because they're so far ahead of everybody else, we've seen this, you know, they get down there and they start doing their little dance, and they, they end up messing up. And something happens. They fumble it or something. That's happened. Uh, and so, or they're so just overly confident, you know, one poor guy runs the wrong way, right? Runs in the other end zone. Crazy. All right? And so we have to be aware of our surroundings, and we have to be keep focused on the Lord. Don't allow all the noise around us to be a distraction to us. And some of the noise, it's not always bad. Sometimes it could be good things that are creeping into your life, that are getting your eyes off focus. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And then it says this, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. See, if you're focused on one thing and one thing only, if you're focused on pleasing God and, and doing the will of God in your life, everything else will fall into place. But if you're given to, you know, want to please everybody and you overlook God, you're going to have a miserable life because it's going to catch up with you. You know, sooner or later, you're not going to be able to please everybody. You're going to have to be someone over here and someone over there. And you're going to have to be three or four different people to people because that's what people want to hear or that's what they want to see you and you. But when you're pleasing God, it's completely different. You know, we live to an audience of one, right? We live to Christ and for his glory. And so we will give an account to the Lord. It's vital that we do his work regardless of how many proud peacocks are strutting around and offering their their criticism. We just continue to do what the Lord wants us to do. And so some of these people were prideful. Secondly, in verses 4 to 9, we see some were political. Some were political. Look at this simple request in verse 4. It says, And Gideon came... To the Jordan, remember he's got 300 men with him. They've been fighting, 
defeated all these people. They're worn out. They crossed over. And he and the 300 men who were with him, I love this phrase, exhausted yet pursuing. That's, that's what we're called to do as Christians. You know, we continue to serve even though we're exhausted. We continue to, to serve even when it doesn't look right. We continue even when the enemy's creeping up behind us, exhausted yet pursuing. They're, they're continuing to do what God has called them to do. So it says in verse 5, So he said to the men of Succoth, was the first city they came to, Hey, can you give us some uh, loaves of bread to the people who follow me? For they're exhausted. Now remember, the, the, they just defeated the enemy. You would think that everybody would be like, Oh yeah, we'll give you whatever you want. But it's almost like it's a, it seems like a, these people are not receptive of that. It says, please give us loaves so we can feed our men. They're exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmuna, the kings of Midian. So he's going after the kings. He goes, so here's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're going to take these people out of commission. They won't be hassling us anymore. They won't be coming down from all the hills and stealing all our harvest and crops and everything. Uh, that's not going to happen anymore because we're going to defeat them. And so they pass these two towns, and he cons- he's concerned about the welfare of his men, which is good for a military leader to be concerned about. You know, you can't be just forging ahead as a military leader and never look behind to see how your men are doing, because they may not be there anymore, right? So you're always concerned about your men. They, they, they got your back, literally. So uh, he becomes concerned about that. They pass two towns. So they come to Succoth. Then they come to um, uh, Penuel. And in each town, Gideon makes this simple request. And it's very reasonable um, of his fellow. This is not the enemy. These are his fellow Israelites. Okay? And so he, he, he asks this simple request to these, to these fellow brothers. And um, he asked them for bread to feed his weary men. And it should have been met without hesitation. You know, it'd be like, you know, someone coming back from war. And, you know, hey, could you, could you give me some groceries? You know, I just got back and family needs to eat. And, you know, nah, go get your own. I mean, that, you wouldn't do that as an American. You just wouldn't do that to someone who's served in battle and came home. Unfortunately, our country has done that to people who've gone to battle, right? The whole Vietnam era and everything else. I mean, they treated them like garbage when they came home which is just disgraceful completely. But it was a very simple request. And look at verse 6. It says in verse 6, And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? And then look down at verse 8. And from where he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. He did the same thing there. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. So what was their, what was their answer? Nah, we're not going to give you anything. Because we don't know if you're going to win this battle yet, Gideon. Do you have the kings in your company yet? How do we know the kings are not going to still overrun you? Okay. And if they overrun you, then how... I mean, if, if they beat you then they're going to come after us for helping you. So they're very much being shameful in their reaction here. These men are playing politics 
with the things of God, with the people of God. Um, they want to know, do you, do you have the king's head in your hand yet? You know, do you have, have, you, have you defeated these guys yet? Because if you don't have the kings yet, then you really haven't won the battle yet. So you're not getting any bread from us. And both of these cities are part of the tribe of Gad, which is interesting because Gad means a troop. Uh, specifically, it refers to a troop that crushes through the enemies. So you think these guys would understand. You think that these people would be willing to help another political or military leader who's doing an overwhelming defeat. He's, he's, he's has an overwhelming victory. He's defeating the enemy. You think you'd want to help him. Uh, but these people were not living up to their heritage, obviously. They would not even help uh, one of the, the men of God here, Gideon, who God chose, remember, to deliver them from their enemies to fight for uh, deliverance. They were like, really, the, the politicians of our day, right? I mean, whenever an election comes around, what do politicians do? If you ask them, what do you believe on this? What have they done? They put their finger in the air, and they say, which way, which way is the wind blowing? And if the wind's blowing this way, then that's the answer I'm going to give you. Very seldom do you have politicians that speak their own mind. They basically are controlled. And so they say whatever's going to get them more votes or get them more money or get them whatever they're after. Uh, and here they were afraid to take a stand for God. And when the people of, of Succoth and Penuel refused to support God's work, what were they doing? They were demonstrating the fact that they were against God's work. Remember what we said before. Not obeying, all right, or putting off obedience is what? It's disobedience. It's disobedience. You can't have it both ways. And so when they refused to help Gideon and his army, they were actually guilty of giving aid to the enemy. Uh, I heard a, it was actually a priest, uh, someone, Emmanuel sent me a, a video of this priest on Sanctity of Life Sunday. And uh, he looked Irish, but... Uh, he gave a, a wonderful homily, even, you know, I don't agree with his theology, but his homily was amazing. He, t he told about how he was over in uh, uh, Germany, and I think they, they visited uh, Auschwitz and one of the, one of the uh, camps there, and they were c coming home from their tour, and everybody was kind of somber on the bus. And he was saying that, you know, I mean, you, you're exposed to just so much evil when you went through this tour of what happened to the Jews over there. But when they, when they were coming home, everybody was really somber, and, and, and some of the Americans were saying, how could they just allow that to happen? How wrong is that? Why didn't somebody do something? They were angry, and they were speaking out boldly, these men on the bus. And he said they got to a certain part of, went on for a couple hours or whatever, this bus ride, and they got to a certain town or going through a certain town, and they stopped at one of the, the places, and this one, or this one guy on the bus, he was apparently drunk, he had a little boy, and he was kind of uh, disrupting the passengers, and he was kind of uh, manhandling this one lady. Okay, so this, this, this priest said he saw this going on, and she started shouting at the man, you know, get away from me, stop it, he was trying to touch her and all this stuff. So he, he went up and he put himself between the man and this lady. And he continued to try to 
you know, reach over the man. He was just totally intoxicated. Well, the bus driver got, told him to knock it off a couple times. Finally, he stopped the bus, kicked him off the bus. And while he was trying to drive away, the guy somehow got back in the bus. And so he's almost like dragging this guy. Anyway, he ended up stopping, getting out of the bus, pushing the guy away. And when he did, it was right in front of this really, really, really bad bar. And he said, in this part of the world, he goes, women don't go to these bars. It's just bad people go to these bars. And they go to there to do one thing, bad things, and drink. And apparently, like, three or four of these big men came out. And uh, they took the side of the drunk man. And they started to just pummel the bus driver. Just beat him, like, senseless. And this priest said he looked out the window and he saw this going on. And, you know, in his anger, he goes, all American men, let's go. And he runs off the bus. And he's thinking, yeah. and he looks behind him, there's two men. And he goes, this isn't good. He goes, we're, we're going to get the snot beat out of this. And he said, I was so angry. And he goes, luckily, we were able to talk our way out of this. And we actually took the man back on the bus just so the bus driver would live. And he was able to drive away. But he said, it, it amazed me that these same, same people, and he goes, the, the rest of the ride, he goes, I was so angry at the rest of the men on the bus because they wouldn't lift a finger. And yet they were just crying about, how could this happen to all the Jews? Why didn't somebody do anything? And yet it happened right before our eyes. And I guess, you know, sometimes we have to be understanding, and he, he related it to the sanctity of life. And he said, you know what? There's, there's millions of unborn babies being slaughtered every year in our country. And he said, you know what? The Catholic Church is not doing anything about it. The cardinals are not willing to stand up to the political machine. And he just went off on these people. And I thought, boy, he's not going to be a priest very long. And he even said that. But he even exhorted his congregation. And he said, you know what? He goes, this is meant to be political. But if you voted for our current president, you voted for someone who is, is just encouraging the slaughter of unborn children. And he calls himself a Catholic. And he goes, that's what really makes me mad. And he, he gave a really, really strong rebuke to his congregation. And he said, if you believe that, you can walk out the door. You're not welcome. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, I, I've never heard a priest say something like that before. And then he just kind of threw his paper down and he walked off. And the people were clapping. Goes, Don't you clap. Because this is a shameful, this is shameful what's going on. I mean, it was really very, very, very strong video. But you know what? For him not to do anything on that bus or even with the, 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 the whole abortion thing, not to say anything. But you know what? That's what Christians do today. They, they're kind of just, well, I'm not going to. You know, it's such a political hot button. I'm just going to bow out of the conversation. I don't want to cause problems. You know what? The truth, sometimes, most times, what's it do? It offends. And sometimes it causes division. It disrupts. But you know what? That's, that's what it's supposed to do. That's what it's supposed to do. And so we have to be aware of that. Not to do anything like these guys. You're really supporting the enemy. And uh, in his homily, he said, if you did vote for the past, this current president, don't you dare put any money in the offering. 
I don't want your blood money. I mean, he, he was just very strong. And I thought, wow, good for you, mister. You know, I mean, what, a, what an amazing message. Well, these people were not here. They were, they were not thankful. They refused to help Gideon. They were actually guilty of giving aid for not doing anything to the enemy. And these people were not thankful for what God had already done. And like the Ephraimites, they only wanted to find fault with Gideon and to protect their own little kingdoms. They weren't worried about anybody else. They just wanted to protect their own little kingdom. And so they, they failed to realize that by giving Gideon bread and feeding his men, they would be guaranteeing what? Future blessing. They would be guaranteeing future blessings for their own people. But all they cared about was the status quo. They just wanted to just maintain the status quo. And there are still people around here today, unfortunately, who do the same things that these cities do. They play politics with the things of God. And, you know, there's no gray areas when it comes to the work of the Lord. You can't have gray areas. You can't be neutral when it comes to serving our Lord and Savior. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 12, 31. He says, whoever is not with me is what? Against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So you can't have one toe in and one toe out. You just can't do that. And those who refuse to support the Lord's work will not support those who serve him. And those who don't respect the work of God will not respect the workers of God. And so when we refuse to give to the work of the Lord, when we refuse to participate in the work of the Lord, and when we refuse to respect the work of the Lord, just because we're looking out for our own interests, first, what are we doing? We're, we're guilty of what? Aiding the enemy. We're guilty of aiding the enemy. So we see a simple request, a shameful refusal, and then you see the solemn response in verse 7 and 9. Um, Verse 7, so Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and, and, and Zamuna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Down at verse 9. And he said to the men of Penu, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. What's he saying? He's saying, Okay, if you're not going to support us, guess what? You're going to pay. Because these kings will be defeated, and on the way back, I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to take you out as well. Because you're, you're on the enemy's side, as far as I'm concerned. Um, we have to be reminded of this. Gideon tells them that they will face judgment when he returns to the victor, as the victor over the Midianites. He reminds them that there's a price to pay for standing against the work of the Lord. Um, one day, what, what's going to happen? We're going to stand before God. We're going to stand before the Lord. We're going to give an account for our own service to Him. He's not going to ask, well, how many people did you witness to? He's not going to ask, how many homeless people did you feed? He's not going to ask, how many sermons did you preach? Or how many people were in your church? He's not going to ask any of that. He's going to ask one, you know, he's going to be interested in one thing. Were you faithful? Were you faithful to the task that I gave you? Um, and we have to give an account for that, for doing the, his work. Even when we fail, even when we fail, um, 
at least we're not opposing him. We're doing the work of the Lord. We may be doing it the wrong way. We may, may, we may not be seeing all the victory and, and blessings. Maybe every service that we do is a failure. But you know what? What God is saying is that's even better than someone who's doing nothing. Because they're really on the enemy's side. So we have to be careful about opposing those who are actively trying to serve the Lord um, in any way. In, in Romans 14, verse 12, Paul says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Or Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And what does God save us to do? James chapter 2, verse 18, basically tells us he saves us to work. He doesn't save us to take a vacation until he comes back. James says, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, Christianity has to have works attached to it. You don't get saved by works. But if you're saved, if you're transformed by the Spirit of God, there better be some works in your life. Or God's a liar, because God says that he prepared beforehand good works for us to do as believers. So if you're not doing that, then you're not doing what God has prepared beforehand for yourself. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship, it says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he expects us to be involved to the best of our ability, <clears throat> doing the best we can and being faithful at it. So if you're a preacher, you go out there and you preach. If you're a singer, you stand up and you sing. If, you, if you're someone who gives your testimony, you like to evangelize, then you do it for the glory of God. Um, if you're gifted in finance, then you know what? Give it to the Lord and watch him bless it for his glory. That's what we're called to do. Get active. Um, I often said God doesn't save us as sinners to become spectators. He's never saved us from our sin to just to sit in church and to do absolutely nothing except listen to a message once a week. That's not what God has called us to. And so we need to be involved in the work of the Lord. Um, some were prideful, some were political. Verse 4 and then verse 10 to 21. We're not going to read all this, but we're going to see some of this. See, some people, they walked in with their pride. Others allowed their personal politic and their pol political agendas to determine their allegiance. You know, how is this going to benefit me? But what we see, this awesome picture of Gideon and these 300 men, what did they do? They simply persevered in their work for the Lord. They knew that they were doing the work of the Lord. That's why they had the victory. And so they said, you know what, we're getting all this criticism, Gideon. Uh, should we just stop? They didn't even raise that question. Because they were led by someone who had some common sense and realized, you know what? These guys who are criticizing us, they're not even involved in it. So let's just keep on going. God will provide. And that's why I love that phrase in verse 4, exhausted yet pursuing them. These men were tired. They were weary from battle. I mean, you can only imagine you know, how many people they've, de how many men they defeated, and here they, they were hungry, they were in great need of rest, yet what did they do? They, they persevered, they carried on. Uh, I love that attitude. That's, that's the kind of attitude that the Bible speaks of New Testament believers. 
that we are not ones to just, just lay down. Okay, what does the Bible say? That we should be overcomers, that we should be persevering saints. We continue, no matter what the government says, no matter what mandate there is, we continue to do what God has called us to do. And then you let the consequences fall where they may. You know, that's a very important thing to be reminded of. And God works out the details. He always seems to work out the details. I mean, I don't know where we ever got the idea that there was a place to sit down on the Lord. You just kind of sit down and you do nothing in your Christian life. And yet churches are full of people. All they do is attend. They just attend. Um, it's not okay to sit back and watch others do all the work. You know, sometimes I hear criticism in a fashion of, you know, you're trying to do too much. You're trying to do too much. You know, uh, and my question is always the same. Well, where's the line of people that want to do all this? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's that simple. Because it has to get done. So we can't just back off. We can't slow down. We can't take it easy in our spiritual walk. We're, we're called to do this each and every day. And uh, you know what? You can join in any time and help. Roll up your sleeves and, and give the glory to the, the Lord and watch him use you in an incredible way. Um, I would suggest the idea that we can just relax and be a spectator. It doesn't come from God. It comes from the enemy. I mean, he, if you're able to just come on a Sunday and sit down and listen to a sermon and go through the rest of the week and not do anything for the Lord, then you know what? He's won. Maybe not ultimately, but he's, he's basically uh, made you uh, ineffective in the things of God. And so we have to be careful of that. I would recommend be like Gideon, be like his men. Even when we get weary, even when we're tired, even when we're discouraged, even when we're frustrated, what do we do? We continue to press on for the glory of God. Because that's the right thing to do. Not because people are watching, Ephesians 6.6 6 says. We don't want to be people pleasers. But we want to be bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I mean, you know, whenever you're working for the Lord, you're, you're just, you know, the wheels are just churning in heaven. I mean, you're just filling up your blessings in heaven. But what you're doing down here, if it's just for your glory or if it's just for this planet, it's like a vapor. It's going to be gone. You know, it doesn't matter how many degrees you have after your name. It doesn't matter how long you've gone to school or how many businesses you've had or how, how, how much is in your bank account. When you die, none of that's going to matter. The only thing that's going to matter for believers when they die is, wow, they, they, they want to be ushered into the, the kingdom of God. And I don't know about you, but I want to hear those words, well done, what? Good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, we all grow weary from time to time in battle. But when we do, we have to look back at Jesus' example, as I read in Hebrews 12, that despising the shame, he endured the cross. Um, we need to consider him who endured from, 
from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In verse 3 of Hebrews 12 it says, um, we're only going to be on this world a short time. And then we're going to fly off to glory to be with him. Amen? And say, while we're here, let us determine to do everything we can for his glory. So how they continued, verse 4, how they conquered um, there in, in, in uh, 10 to 12. It, it really, um, Gideon and his men defeated the enemy and they captured the Midianite kings because they persevered in the face of opposition. They persevered in the face of criticism. And you know what? They enjoyed a great victory as a result of that. I'm, I'm sure all of us had points in our lives where we were doing something. It doesn't matter what it is. But you know what? And you grow weary. You know, my grandson and I were trying to put these cameras in the last couple of days, and part of the job of putting in these cameras was running this Cat 5 heavy, solid core copper Cat 5 cable. And you have to put it on these little connection, and you've got to get the color. It's all stranded cable. They have, you know, orange and striped orange, and I'm colorblind. So I'm like, Mason, you need to help me. And so the, the first pass, we did three cables, and... The two that he did worked, and the one that I didn't, didn't work. <laughs> and it was just, you know, frustrating. And, you know, we'd been doing this for two days. Now, finally, you know, I just kept on telling myself, you got to persevere. you got to keep going. I just wanted to quit, literally, and say, I'm just going to go buy these things already terminated, and who cares? But you know what? We persevered, and finally today we, we won. <laughs> we, got it all, we got them all connected. You know, now we got to clean everything up. But we, we got it done. You know why? Because we persevered. It would have been very easy the first day to say, oh, my, my fingers actually hurt from crimping these cables. Cause it does. It, your fingers hurt after a while. So it's, but we persevered and it worked. And, and that's where you see here in Gideon and his men, they wouldn't be stopped short of victory. They saw God move with great power as a result. They persevered in the face of opposition. And they had a great, great victory. And you know what? Those who refuse to quit um, and they, they persist, they persevere in following the Lord's will for their lives are the ones who will see him use them in great ways. When you, when you look like at, at different characters throughout the history of the church, I mean, you have some missionaries, beloved, they go to a foreign land, they give up everything. And you think that God would want to encourage him, right? I mean, they walk away from everything. And they go to this foreign land, and this is a long time ago when we didn't have all the conveniences of today. And some of these brothers and sisters worked in this, their, their foreign land countries as a missionary for years, years, some tens of years, without one convert, not one. And yet they were faithful. They were faithful to what God called them to do. And eventually God uses them in an incredible way. That's his promise. Uh, that's why in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes to us, he says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season what will it do? It will reap if we do not give up. In due season, it will reap something positive. We just got to keep on persevering. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. I mean, Jesus never said, hey, if you follow me, man, it's going to be a cakewalk. It's going to be so easy peasy, man. We're going through the roses and just, oh, it'd be nice. Just 
dancing through the tulips every day. No. He said, if you want to follow me, what do you have to do? First, yeah, first of all, you have to, what, deny yourself. Take up your cross. What's a cross? It's not something gold and shiny or silver you wear around your neck. What's a cross? A cross is an instrument of death. So he said, you know what? You have to give up your own life. You have to follow me. In other words, die to yourself. It's not about you anymore. Then you can be. Then you can be my disciple. You know, he didn't do a bait and switch. He didn't say, yeah, follow Jesus and all your felt needs will be met. Everything, you'll be happy, happy in Jesus, you know. No. He said, no, if, if you want to follow me, it's, I mean, it, honestly, he said, look at what they've done to me. They're, they're not going to receive you any better. You're going to have a little more tougher than, we, than even I did. That's what the Lord said. And, and that's true, all of his disciples. Except, uh, what, John? Was, was martyred, right? They were all martyred. And it's not like they didn't know it was coming. Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, right? We love this verse. They shall mount up their wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. But you have to wait on the Lord. God doesn't give it to us all at once. You know, a lot of times, you know, I, I always remember flying when, when the kids used to live in Florida. We'd fly from uh, California back to Florida to visit them. And sometimes we'd be on Southwest flight and I'd be staring out the window. And sometimes it'd be night. And it'd be pitch black. And on a clear night, you'd look down and you'd see nothing. It'd just be black, 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 you know, going through Nebraska. All of a sudden you see this little tiny dot of lights. And I'm thinking, wow, that's weird. And then you go a little bit longer and you see another little group of lights. And it just blew me away because I thought, you know what? Even that's a really probably tiny, maybe a couple hundred people. There's probably a church in that tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. They're never going to have more than 20 people that show up for a service because there's only 40 people in the town. And yet God has called a pastor to pastor that little church. And he's doing everything he can every week, just preparing, feeding his flock, praying for his flock, helping him, visiting him. And he's just focused on those 20 people. And he's never going to have a mega church. He's never going to have 500 people. He's never going to have 100 people. He's never going to have 50 people. <laughs> but what's he? He's faithful. He's faithful. And he's waiting on the Lord. Not to make his church big. He's waiting to see the Lord, to hear those words. What? Well done, good and faithful servant. Those who persevere will enjoy the best of God's blessings. But you know what? If you quit, those who quit will see God do absolutely nothing. How they continued, how they conquered. Last thing here quickly, 13 to 21. How they concluded, Gideon came back, as you read the story, with the Midianite kings. And guess what? He comes back to Succoth. He said he was coming back, and here he comes. And he took their 75 elders and it says he put them to death. It says there in verse 12, In Ziba, these kings, and Zalmunna fled, and Gideon pursued them, and he captured the two kings of Midian, and he threw them all into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle by the ascent of heirs, and he captured a young man of Succoth, and questioned him, and he wrote down 
for the, him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth, and he said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmuna, about whom you have taunted me. I remember what you said. Saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? Verse 16. And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Harsh. That's what happens when you oppose the work of God. That's what happens when you oppose a servant of the Lord, really. Verse 18, Then he said to Ziba and Zomila, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabar? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers and sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Kind of makes sense. Then Ziba and, and Zomia uh, uh, said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. Still mocking him right down to the end. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zomuna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So God gave him the victory in all these things. He just, he just wiped these people out. The principle is simply this. Those who walk with the Lord, those who do his will, what will happen? You'll enjoy victory in your life. That's the principle. If you want the Lord's blessings, if you want his power, if you want his victory to be manifested in your life, the only path that you should follow is his path. The only path, will that you should be concerned with is his will. And when you walk with the Lord, obedience to him always, always results in victory. And when you walk against him, guess what? You can expect nothing but defeat. You can expect nothing but defeat. So ask yourself this question as we close. If you had to sum up your life today, how would you do it? Would you say you're walking in pride? You're walking in arrogance? Would you say everything in your life is about your own political advantage, trying to turn things around just so it benefits you? Or can you honestly say that you are doing the best that you can to be persistent in your walk with him? Um, what God is looking for today is people who will take their stand for him. Who will take their stand for him. At the end of our Easter sunrise service, I said this, you know, if there's ever a time in the history of the world that the church needs to stand up and declare that we are essential, it's today. It's today. And the only reason we are essential is because what? He is essential. That's the only reason. And so we need to be saying to ourselves, you know what, we're not going to back down. Can you honestly say you're doing the best of your ability to walk in persistence with him? 
God is looking for people who says, no, I'm not going to back down from this. I'm going to go to my grave proclaiming Christ. He's looking for people to be involved in his ministry. He's looking for people who want to serve him. I mean, you're always contributing to something greater when you're working for the Lord. You know, anything here you're working on is just temporary. Just temporary. Let's close the word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather and meet and learn from the life of Gideon and his men and really their persistence in doing the will of God. Lord, there's many times throughout this story, that we, this account that we've read, that they could have quit. They could have said, oh, this isn't worth it. But you know what? They persevered. And you gave them an incredible victory. And you also used Gideon to teach your own people a lesson. The elders of these cities and how they were so complacent and political and prideful. And it cost them dearly. And Father, we want to serve you with all our heart just because that's what you call us to do. We want to obey you. We want to do the right thing because we know that in the end we're not going to answer to anybody but you. And so, Father, help us to keep that mindset, to keep that perspective. Pray for the rest of the week that you would just continue to bless us. Pray for those in our church. You continue to protect them and just uh, uh, look forward to our, our time together on Sunday as we worship once again as the body of Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.